Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about the Terra Nova expedition. Now, you may already be aware of the great race, the scramble, that took place at the beginning of the 20th century uh, as people all vied to be the, the first to reach uh, the South Pole because, of course, by this stage, uh, more or less the entire Earth has been explored, but no one has got to the South Pole, and the person who thinks he's the man for the job is Robert Falcon Scott. He is the leader of the Terra Nova expedition uh, that was set off by Great Britain at the, at the beginning of the 20th century, as I mentioned. And so today, we're going to have a chat about what went on with this with ex, this expedition and how they ended up faring. So we are beginning the story, of course, as I say, beginning of the 20th century, when, again, most of planet Earth has already been explored and there aren't too many places where no one has been. The South Pole is the biggest and most important uh, exception to that rule. And uh, this is uh, a point at which quite a number of people around the world uh, are looking to put together expeditions, looking to, uh, to, to get something going, Pop, pop an iron in the fire and and make their way uh, down uh, down south towards the South Pole. There now, Robert Falcon Scott, as the leader of the uh, the uh, Terra Nova expedition that uh, that gets set off, he's in a good position to, to lead this expedition for a number of reasons. He's been a member of the the Royal Navy for a long, long time. He joined in 1883 at the age of 15, and he'd actually been on an expedition to Antarctica, not all the way to the South Pole, but to Antarctica in years previous, uh, between 1901 and 1904. He was down there, and for some reason, he's just keen as eggs to get back down there. And I do not understand this at all. I think one visit to this frozen wilderness hellscape would be quite enough for any sane, sane human being. But I tell you what, he, he's ready to, uh, he's, he's just that keen to get back down there and, and just, you know, freeze himself to death again. So uh, that's the way that it, uh, that's the way that things are going for him. Um, his main objective here in setting up this expedition is he wants a Briton to be the first person to set foot foot on the South Pole. He wants he wants uh, you know to chase the honor and glory and for king and country and, and all of that sort of thing. And so uh, for this reason, uh, he starts to make these uh, you know these plans to, to put something together. But he's not the only one, of course. Famously, Roald Amundsen from Norway. He's also uh, looking to uh, to get down there nice and quick as well. Um, and uh, I mean even other people like a ripper bloke Doug, Douglas Mawson, Australian greatest greatest country on earth, mate. Australia's going to get down there as well. Um, but it was it's Robert Falcon Scott and the Terra Nova expedition that we're going to sort of focus on today. So in preparing for this expedition, he, Scott, he gets together a crew of 65 blokes uh, uh, to crew this ship, which is, of course, called the Terra Nova. That's where the expedition gets its name from, this ship. Now, they get to all, they also get together dogs and ponies and, and even some sort of, you know, uh, prehistoric snowmobiles here, uh, which, which basically look like the bottom half of a tank, sort of like the tank with the, with the top bit cut off. That's what, uh, that's what was going on with these, uh, you know, these caveman uh, snowmobiles, essentially. Um, now, uh, Scott is joined by a guy named Edmund. Mears. He's the kennel master um, and he was also told to buy the ponies and he kind of made an absolute mess of this. Obviously he knows his way around a dog and, and they, I guess they kind of assumed that seeing, he, seeing as you know horses and ponies are basically just big dogs. I don't know what their line of thinking was here, but they told Mears to go out and, and, and source the ponies as well. And he does a very bad job of this. He actually does a really bad job of this and buys some really rubbish old sort of tired, uh, you know, ones that are sort of halfway to death's door anyway. Anyway, 
This is obviously going to become important later on, as you'll see. But there was another thing that they had to do as well as, as gathering, you know, crew and, and, and supplies and, and, and dogs and, and ponies and what have you. They had, they, had have, they had to have enough cash. They had to have enough money to actually get this off uh, off the ground. They had to get three million pounds, three million pounds in, uh, you know, in, in this money in, in 1910 is, is worth a lot better, you know, a squillion pounds these days. It's a fair bit of money. Uh, and so what they do is obviously they go around all the nerdy science clubs like the Royal Society and the Royal Geographic society they say oh how you going fellas do you want to give us some cash and, and we're going to head down there you know we'll, we'll bring back all the snow and rocks that you want don't even worry about it and so they get a bit of uh, they get a bit of funding that way but if you'll believe it this is ridiculous they actually get commercial sponsors to to fund this trip in part at least to the south pole commercial sponsors they get coleman's mustard oxo and even Heinz baked beans. Bloody Heinz is there, but you know, oh, expedition to the South Pole. South Pole proudly brought to you by Heinz baked beans. I, I couldn't believe it when I read this, but it's absolutely true. Anyway, after all of these uh, these things have been uh, secured, they begin to uh, you know prepare themselves properly for the trip. And on the fifteenth of June, nineteen ten. Terra Nova leaves Wales and sails south. Now, Scott wasn't actually even on the ship at this point. He joined them much later, um, and he uh, he didn't join them also while they sailed from Melbourne to New Zealand. And and he's actually down there already. He's fundraising and, and you know, trying to G people up about it down there in Melbourne, probably, you know, going down, hitting the clubs and uh, yeah, getting some jars into him down on, uh, down on uh, Ackland Street, whatever else. Anyway... Um, he joins up with them uh, after you know all of this this period there. But while he's in Melbourne, he gets a telegram. He gets a telegram with some very bad news. It says that Roald Amundsen, that cheeky Norwegian bastard, he is already on his way south, and that this race is absolutely it is on like Donkey Kong here, right? So anyway, Scott joins up with the with the ship in New Zealand, and they get absolutely rooted by a storm between um, New Zealand and Antarctica. This storm it shuts. It it stops them in their tracks, essentially, and they lose, lose a huge amount of fuel. And then they get stuck in ice for three weeks. So already they're, uh, they're not sort of, you know, going, going, out the gray, uh, going out the gates like a greyhound here. They have already sort of, you know, come across some, some, uh, some setbacks and some delays. Anyway, they finally arrive on the Ross Ice Shelf on the 4th of January, 1911. So around about a six-month trip to actually get down to uh, to Antarctica. Now, Scott renames the place Cape Evans after his 2IC. Very, very happy about this, obviously. Bloody Evans there going, absolutely, mate. Good pick. Good choice there. Well done. Um and uh, once they've set themselves up again, it's, it's January, so it is the, it's summer down there in Antarctica. They they start to go out on little small journeys, uh, setting stuff up for the trip to come, which is is planned to start after the winter in the next October. So they're going around setting up little caches and little supply uh, drops and all that sort of stuff, you know, to prepare themselves for for the for the uh, oncoming journey. Now, a bloke named Campbell ran into Amundsen while uh, and some of Amundsen's mates while this uh, setup w- was ongoing. So you know, these two expeditions aren't actually even all that far away from one another um so anyway this bloke campbell he runs into him and says hey go mate yeah whatever yeah get it yeah stick it up your bum mate whatever um, and he goes back to tell scott what's happening here now scott actually was keen to go and start you know chucking some punches about with amundsen they wanted to go and punch on and actually you know sort of have it out between them but uh, eventually decides that uh, discretion is the better part of valor and he's going to beat him uh, mano a mano just uh, you know the fair way to to the south pole just like that 
Anyway, we get to April and the sun goes down for the winter. And of course, we're now, you know, it's, it's just nighttime all the time uh, from then onwards. Um, and uh, all the people on the expedition, the Terra Nova, you know, the, the crew of the Terra Nova, they're hanging out, they're doing sciencey stuff, they're doing experiments and, uh, you know, exercising the poor animals that were still with them, all the dogs and ponies still there for the Antarctic winter, the, the poor things. Anyway, um, and, you know, and they're either doing other stuff. They're playing soccer and mucking around and, you know, just generally having a, as good a time as you can in, again, a, a frozen wasteland. Uh, but in fairness, they actually did do a, a fair bit of a uh, very valuable science uh, and a lot of a lot of you know research that's, that's useful even today uh, learning a lot about the geology of the place and and, and glaciers and, and and penguins as well so there's a lot of stuff that actually came of that little sort of interstitial period during the winter there anyway in September, Scott announces his plans to get to the South Pole. He, he gets he gets the blokes together and he says, all right, fellas, listen up. Here's how we're going to do this. What's going to happen is they're going to climb all the way over the Ross Ice Shelf. They're going to go across it there like that, which at, at that point was actually called the Great Ice Barrier, which is a, a pretty, I mean, a much more impressive name, I would say. Um, and then they're going to climb over the Beardmore Glacier and continue to the South Pole across the Antarctic Plateau. Uh, he's going to head there with 15 other blokes two of these motor sledges, these uh, sort of snowmobiles, uh, as well as the ponies and the dogs. Now, only of, of these 16 people that are going to leave, only four of them are actually going to go all the way to the pole. And Scott actually doesn't tell them uh, uh, anything about who is going to be those four. This guy has basically invented Survivor, Antarctic edition, you know, decades before it ever was on the telly. He said, there are 16 of you, but only four of you are going to make the cut. Uh, you know, let, let's get to it and see, may the best man win. So, after having announced these plans in September, we get around to October, and on the 20th, 24th of October, 1911, four blokes set out on motor sledges, uh, which uh, failed a week later. So they had to actually haul the 300-plus kilogram load that they were supposed to be taking nearly 250 kilometres. These blokes were supposed to, to be, you know, go out as an advance party, set up supply caches and supply drops, but then they actually have to drag, because the snowmobiles just don't work, they have to then drag all the supplies that they've taken out out like by hand essentially so a, a, a bloody rubbish job for those uh, for those boys there on the 1st of November, a week later, the other 12 blokes lead. Now, obviously, uh, you know, they've got the uh, they've got the, the the dogs and the ponies with them, and they they meet, they catch up with these guys who who uh, ruined the, uh, the 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 motor sledges, the, the snowmobiles there, and and now they're all uh, sort of one party. Um, they uh, they end up meeting up with these guys on the 21st, and it's actually at this point, 21st of November, and it's actually at this point that. Uh, Two of them get sent home already, so we're already down to uh, to fourteen people here because two of the blokes set, get sent back. Their names are Hooper and Day. Now they were supposed to take the dogs back with them, but because they were making such bad progress, Scott decides to keep the dogs along with them, uh, in you know, to try to speed things up a little bit. So fourteen of them now continue uh, until the Beardmore Glacier, where uh, and it's at this point once they reach that that there is a huge blizzard and it absolutely it just it doesn't absolute number on them and stops them in their tracks for a long time and they can't uh, they can't keep moving for days and days they've, they've stopped on the 4th of December uh, my brother's birthday happy birthday Oliver and um, at this point they, they just can't they can't move and and it's, it's actually getting really really bad here because now they're starting to eat into supplies that were earmarked for later on in the trip so things are already kind of getting dicey even at this er, you know earlier stage 
Anyway, a couple of days later, on the 11th, Scott sends back two more people, Mears and Dimitri, and they take the dogs back. And you'll remember Mears is, is the, the kennel master, so he takes the dogs back with them. Now, the poor old ponies at this point, I'm sorry to say this, they are shot, and uh, their meat is, is sort of squirreled away there for the return journey. So the poor old horses, they've come all the way to the end of the earth, and then they get turned into, you know, bloody supply rations. So... Poor old ponies there. Anyway, uh, once uh, the rest of these, uh, the people who were there, so there are now 12 people left, once the, these 12 fellows uh, get through the glacier, they, they get through the the, uh, the Beardmore Glacier, on the 22nd of December, Scott then sends back four more of them. So they've just got through this glacier and then Scott's like, thanks very much for that, fellas. Won't be needing you anymore. Turn your tail and don't let the tent flap hit you on the way out, I guess. So the four people get that get sent back are Atkinson, Wright, Cherry Garrard and Keohane. So there are now only eight blokes left for those playing at home. We've already had half the expedition uh, be sent back. And so eight people remaining, and they continue across the Antarctic Plateau, which you'll remember was the final stage of that journey, the big long stretch that would get them ultimately to the South Pole. Now, they're mean, they're actually the, the conditions have improved enormously here, and, uh, and things are much, much better, meaning they're making good progress. They're kind of catching up on some of the time they've lost there. So things are, things are looking pretty good until... New Year's Day, come around, big party, no worries. Once the hangover's uh, cleared up on the 3rd of January, Scott announces the winner of Survivor Antarctica, or the winners, I should say, because there are a couple of them that were coming with him. They, they're actually going to be five people who continue to the poll based on the rations and the sort of the stuff that they had left. Originally, it was just going to be four, but uh, Scott uh, announces that five people of the remaining eight are going to come with them and three are going to have to uh, head off back home. So the four, the, sorry, the five people that are remaining, of course, Robert Scott himself, Edgar Evans, Edward Wilson, Henry Bowers, and a name you might have heard of before, Lawrence Oates. And we'll talk about why this guy's very famous uh, uh, when we uh, when we come to the next part of the story. So three blokes, bang out of luck. Ev- the other Evans, Lashley and Crean, they have to turn around and go back. Thanks very much for playing, GG. See you later. Um, so the five of these blokes, uh, Scott, Evans, Wilson, Bauer, Bowers, and Oates, the five of them, they continue on for two more weeks, and they finally after such a long, hard slog, after all of the stuff that's gone wrong, and then eventually, you know, they fixed it up and all of these trials and tribulations, they finally reach the South Pole on the 17th of January, and the first thing they see is Amundsen's flag. So they know they've been beaten. It is a huge, huge pasting for these blokes because, of course, they've come so far, they've tried so hard to get it, you know, to get it done, and then these Norwegian buggers have just beaten them to it. So bit of a you know bit of a blow for the for them after having worked so hard to get there because they they're just devos they're so devastated by what's happened here but there is a glimmer of hope. There's a glimmer of hope here because what they realize is if we get a real, if we get a wriggle on, we turn around and head back, we might just be the first to get back to Australia and send the first telegraph home. So this is the new goal. It's not to be the first to get there, but it's the first to announce it because, of course, once that goes out to the world presses, these guys are going to get all the credit as soon as the story breaks. So that is the new plan. That's the plan B now, just to be the first one on the on the front page uh, you know, of the new newspapers back in the day. So the next day, after, you know, turning tail and, and, and trying to hurry back, they actually discover a tent left behind by Amundsen with a note saying that he'd been there on the 14th of December. So he's actually beaten them by a month. Things aren't looking good for them to get back in time at this at this stage. And, and you know, it's actually kind of cheeky of Amundsen here because he's he's left this letter for them to uh, to read like a little note for them to read and and he's accompanied it with a letter for the uh, for the king of Norway uh, in case Amundsen doesn't make it back he's asked Scott to deliver this letter to the king of Norway you know 
in case Amundsen is is unsuccessful in, in reporting it properly. So, bit of a bit of a ballsy move there from Amundsen, I have to say. Getting you know his his sworn foe to do his work for him. But in any case, after this discovery, the five blokes again they 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 continue on this march home. And and to be honest, they're not feeling too good about things because now they know that it's very unlikely that they're going to be the first ones to uh, to announce their you know arrival at the South Pole. Now, for the first three weeks of the march. Uh, they're making very good time. Once again, the conditions are good, and they're making uh, you know they're making great progress here. And 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 again, things are you know a lot better than they they perhaps could have been. But after a while, things start to go from kind of good to bad here as a couple of problems start to to crop up. And the first one is uh, with Edgar Evans. He is uh, he's he's been done by the frostbite. He's got a fair bit of frostbite going on, and, and he's not having a very good time. And on top of that, Lawrence Lawrence Oates, his feet are absolutely buggered. He's had a terrible time with the cold, and he's having a, he's having a lot of trouble kind of you know just walking and and keeping a good pace because the cold is is really starting to get to them after so long in it anyway after they get back down the Beardmore Glacier they have a break and at this stage Wilson collects uh, some rocks and uh, you know for for (laughs) actually thinking about that now it's sort of the dumbest thing you could do because you're trying to make good time and and keep your load as light as possible but Wilson goes around and, and just picks up some some rocks to take back home with him having said that these rocks are actually critical to our ongoing geological understanding of the planet and helped to prove the theory of continental drift, which is actually pretty sweet. So good on you there, Wilson, for, uh, for getting that done there. But things, unfortunately, only get worse from here because, uh, as I said, Evans, who has uh, he's actually also started to go a, a bit bonkers, he, he started to fall over a bunch of times. He's, he's smacking his noggin on the ice. And uh, unfortunately for him, after having, you know, being after getting done by the frostbite and then sort of losing his marbles a little bit, a little bit, he uh, he actually collapses and dies on the seventeenth of February. He just he's he's just gone. He's out of there just like that. So unfortunately, we got a man down now, and they're just down to the final four of them. Um, and uh, the next one to go is Lawrence Oates, and this story is, is actually quite famous here. And and Oates sort of got you know he became he became a bit of a bit of a hero, a bit of a legend because of what happened, uh, the circumstances of his death. What happened was he was he felt like he was burdening the group enormously. He was slowing them down to less than 10 kilometers a day uh, because his hands and his feet were so ruined with frostbite, right? And he insists, he says to the others, you've got to leave me behind. I'm holding you back. Um, it's not going to work. Just pop me in my sleeping bag. I'll have a snooze and that'll be that. That'll be me. I'll, you know, I'll just drift off into you know, a winter wonderland for, for forever and ever. Amen. And uh, the others are refusing. They're saying, no, not the gentlemanly thing to do. We're not going to leave you behind. It's not going to happen. So you know, stay with us, even though you're slowing us down. Now, on the 16th, of March. So you just think about how, you know, they've reached the pole around New Year's and, uh, and oh, sorry, they've reached the pole about, you know, a couple of weeks after New Year's, I should say. So they've been on the go for a fair few months now. Uh, on the 16th of March, uh, Lawrence Oates, he finally decides he's had enough. They make camp for the evening. Uh, they've, they, they've set up the tents, whatever else. And he gets up and he walks out of the tent uh, where they'd camped into the minus 40 degree blizzard. Minus 40 degrees is also rather neatly the uh, the temperature at which uh, the two different types of uh, measuring degrees uh, like meet up. Uh, minus 40 Celsius is, is actually the same as minus 40 Fahrenheit. So just bloody cold is all, is all you really need to understand here. Anyway, he gets up. He's just in his pyjamas, just in his, in his jammies there. And he gets up and he says, uh, um, according to Scott later on, Lawrence Oates' last words were, I am just going outside and maybe some time. And he sets foot out into this freezing, freezing blizzard. And of course, he's never seen again. But even with Oates' self-sacrifice, it's such a tragedy the way that this story ends. It's so, so sad indeed, because of course, 
The other three were just, they, they didn't have a chance. They didn't have a chance. The weather was horrifically cold and the terrain uh, Scott described as being like desert sand. Because of course, this snow isn't, isn't wet. It's not even close to being wet, the stuff that's being blown around. It is so cold that it is just crystalline ice. It's, being, it's, it's abrasive and hard and horrifically difficult to try to get through. And so after you know trying valiantly for a, for a number of other days, uh, on the 20th of March, in 19, uh, 1912, they get stuck in another blizzard. The, uh, they were unable to move. Uh, and the last entry, the very last entry in Scott's diary, which is the reason that we know so much about how the expedition went, because Scott's diary did survive. The last entry in it was dated on the 29th of March, 1912. And uh, that was, uh, you know, presumably around the time that the, that the three of them perished, uh, give, finally giving in to the cold, not being able to move because of the blizzard. But what's very, very sad about it is that they died less than 20 kilometres away from the next supply depot. If they'd got even just a little bit further, they would have been able to survive a bit longer and maybe make it back. But as it was, they were stuck there and that was where they met their end. So what was going on with the other blokes who were sent home? Of course, we know the final fate of, 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 of Scott and, and the, the rest of his, uh, you know, the, the, the people who made it all the way to the pole. But what about the others? Well, when Atkinson got back, he was, the, he, he was then the commanding officer. He was in charge of the expedition once, uh, once he was away from Scott. And uh, I have to say, Atkinson did a pretty bloody bad job of the whole thing. He mismanaged it, uh, the team uh, and, and, and worried about stuff that just didn't matter at all. Uh, Mears, who, uh, again, you'll remember, was sent home with the dogs, he was supposed to come and meet Scott on the way back at the beginning of March, but uh, he didn't. And f- there were a number of potential reasons for this. Um, and, and Atkinson, again, was was not doing a good job of, of managing his team and, and doing doing what he, he should have been doing. But the, the reasons that Mears, you know, potential reasons at least why Mears didn't do what he was supposed to do here was that um, he got sent home uh, earlier than was originally planned and, and actually wasn't ready to get going again and, and go and meet, uh, you know, Scott as, as had been arranged. Or um, conversely, Mears was actually super cranky with Scott uh, because uh, he thought the whole expedition was a waste of time and, and, and had been, hadn't been run properly and whatever else. Maybe he's angry that he didn't win Survivor Antarctic Edition. I don't know. Um, or... The, the third potential option that's been put forward uh, is, is that he was just he was just absolutely boned. This guy was so out of it with the cold, with with you know frostbite, with poor health, with whatever else that he just wasn't even up for the journey in the first place. There's no consensus as to exactly why Mears didn't go out and meet Scott as planned, but uh, it, it's safe to say it, it just didn't happen. Atkinson, as a result, instead he sends Cherry Garrard and Dimitri, two of the other guys who were sent uh, sent back, you'll remember, but they hadn't worked with dogs before. Edmund Mears was the kennel master and these other guys hadn't worked with dogs and so they weren't particularly good navigators while working with uh, with these animals there. They drove to a depot and they left food there on the 4th of March, but they didn't go any further to try to find Scott because, again, this weather was so horrific and they didn't want to uh, you know lose their own lives in, in trying to track down where Scott ex- actually was. Um, Cherry Garrard, uh, uh, as you know, as a sort of follow-up to this, he was apparently haunted with guilt for the rest of his life, having done this because he did feel like he let down uh, his expedition leader in not going out and you know making an ex- 
extra effort to try to find him, instead turning around for the relative safety of, of the encampment back uh, back on the Ross Ice Shelf there. Um, anyway, the final thing that Atkinson kind of made a bit of a meal of was a, a last-ditch effort to, to search for Scott, uh, actually himself, right? So Atkinson, on the 26th of March, he uh, he gets together a search party and, and, and heads it up himself. Credit to him for doing that, of course. Um, and But unfortunately, again, has to give up after four days. Only four days they sent they spend looking for Scott and, and the other guys there. But they just they just can't make any headway through the again horrific horrific conditions that are just preventing any kind of meaningful search uh, from being made. So. At this point now, of course, we're heading into the winter. The, the in, in March and April is about when the sun starts to go down for the winter. And as a result, a bunch of them decide, I've had enough of this, and they head off back home to the UK. Um, because, again, they haven't seen Scott for months. He's not been back when when he should have been. And some of them have just given him up straight up. He's just straight up given him up for dead. And they assume that he's not coming back. And so a number of them uh, head back to the UK. The, the winter passes, and in the next spring, so we're talking about the spring of 1912 here in, in September, October, of 1912, um, Atkinson once again gets the group together and they decide once and for all to look for Scott, find what happened to him and, and, and sort of, you know, close the chapter out properly. On October the 29th, after uh, organising this this expedition uh, to find Scott, they finally they leap they leave uh, Cape Evans to hunt for him, and uh, two weeks later they finally find the results uh, the results. They finally find the remains of Scott Wilson and Bowers frozen like icy poles in their tent. And I tell you this, they never, ever found the body of Lawrence Oates. Some say that to this day, he is still one... No, he's dead. Obviously, he's dead. It's it's a frozen hellhole. There's no, no way he survived. Also, he'd be about a million years old if he had. Anyway, what was the final result of the Terra Nova expedition? Of course... After having been beaten by Roald Amundsen, the Norwegians were the first at the South Pole. That is what the history books show. That is the way that things panned out there. But the Terra Nova expedition, all the same, was was still very significant, uh, you know, in, in the story of, of, of this great age of Antarctic discovery and exploration, because Scott remained an absolute hero for ages. People thought he was so super for having just a red hot go, getting out up and about and trying to get to the South Pole in the way that he did. And this was sort of the, the case, this was his reputation for a long time thereafter until, rather interestingly, everyone in the Terra Nova uh, expedition, the original party that set out there, you know, this, this crew of people that went down there to begin with, until all of them died. Once all of the, uh, this, you know, all the people who had been involved, in, involved personally in this expedition finally died of old age or what have you, all the dirty laundry came out. Scott got absolutely blasted for being a tyrant and a poor judge of character. And he was blamed for the death of so much of the crew due to his terrible organisation skills. And this ran counter to this idea of, you know, this British hero who had set off on this expedition and done so much for the cause of discovery and exploration. Criticisms of Scott, you know, of this kind are also set against the fact that the weather was just horrendous. The The conditions that he was trying to get through were just truly horrific. And of course, Evans and Oates also dying didn't help in, in uh, you know, their, their attempt to try to get back safe and sound as a group there. So these days, people still argue about it. They still argue about whether, whether it was bad management or, or bad fortune that uh, ended up dooming the Terra Nova expedition. But I think one thing that it's, it, it's interesting, you know, the sort of question that, that it, uh, this kind of raises is, is, was it all worth it? Was this expedition, ill-fated as it was, resulted in, in the death of so many people and, 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 and what have you, was it all worth it? 
and and we can we can kind of look at this question when I tell you what Scott wrote in his diary uh, when actually at the South Pole. Scott wrote, "This is an awful place and terrible enough for us to have laboured to it without the reward of priority." Well, it is something to have got here, and it was something to have got there. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Terra Nova expedition. Doomed as it was, I tell you what, it's still a ripper yarn. So I hope you've enjoyed uh, learning a little bit about how that uh, that whole expedition went down at the beginning of the 20th century. As ever, my friends, just a reminder that, of course, you can find everything you need to know about the show on our website, halfasthistory.net. And, of course, I'd love it if you wanted to get in touch. Halfasthistory at gmail.com uh, is the best way to email the show. If you again, got an idea for a topic that I should cover or anything else, uh, please do send us through an email. It, it'd be great to hear from you. So that is that for this week. As ever, going to leave you with a thought that was uh, that was posted or a, a question to, for, to ponder here. This one adapted from a question posed by Reddit historian Brown Eye says, if history repeats itself, when will the South Pole be discovered again? <laughs>